Welcome to Eucharist Podcast, where we're exploring what it looks like for a community of disciples to live all of life in reference to Christ. The following sermon was given by Father Ryan Jones on June 11th, 2017, Trinity Sunday. Well, good morning. Welcome. Today is Trinity Sunday. And if you're not familiar with Trinity Sunday, uh, it's a high holy day that we celebrate once a year, always on the Sunday following Pentecost. On Trinity Sunday, we focus our attention not on a particular event in the history of the Christian calendar, like we do with Christmas, or we do with Easter, or Good Friday, or the Ascension. Instead, today we focus, we celebrate uh, the culmination of the entire Christian faith. We celebrate the mystery of who God has revealed himself to be as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, at one level, it could seem strange to have a special day to celebrate the Trinity. Because if you're a Christian, every day is Trinity Day. Every Sunday is Trinity Sunday. In fact, I actually wonder if there might even be a subtle danger to this sort of thing. To celebrate the Trinity on one particular day could actually lead us to risk seeing the Trinity as a sort of side concern or an occasional fascination of the church. But of course, the truth could not be further from this. Nothing is more important to Christian identity than the Trinity. Nothing. That's a bit of an odd claim to make when you consider that the word Trinity never even appears in the Bible itself. In fact, the first time that this word shows up in a theological discussion anywhere in the Christian tradition that we know of is in the year 170 by a a man named Theophilus of Antioch, who otherwise is a rather unimportant figure in the history of the church. From that time on, and over the course of the next uh, couple of centuries, from the second through the fourth century particularly, this word Trinity became exceedingly important for the church. It took on the role of being the official shorthand term to hold together the entire Christian notion of God. So perhaps one way to understand the word Trinity is to see it as a container intended to hold the structure of the mystery of God's self-revelation to us. So you can see it's kind of a big deal. Now, lest you think that I'm suggesting that all this business about the Trinity was merely a creation of the church, I should point out that long before the terminology and the particularities of the doctrine of the Trinity came into their final form, Christians were already talking about God and worshiping God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we saw in several of our scripture readings today. So the basis of the Trinity is the Bible. But the doctrine of the Trinity is not merely an interesting theological nugget taken from a handful of proof texts. Quite the contrary. The doctrine of the Trinity emerges historically as the way to hold together and make sense of the entire revelation of God. There's a sort of running joke uh, amongst pastors and priests that Holy Trinity is the uh, Holy Trinity Sunday is the hardest sermon of the year to preach. The reason is because there's no passage to anchor your sermon in. Like to talk about the Trinity is to try to distill the entire Bible's message about God. The Trinity is 
more of an interpretive lens for viewing the whole Bible than it is merely a topic within its pages. And this is likely the reason why, over the whole course of the history of the church, no theological doctrine has been so hard fought for, so embattled, so analyzed, so critiqued, and so controversial, and so divisive as the doctrine of the Trinity. The Christianity that we teach and that we practice today was pounded into the historical shape in which we now experience it by being hammered on the anvil of the doctrine of the Trinity. That's what our faith is. It's a Trinitarian faith. Simply stated, the Trinity is what gives Christianity its distinctive shape. Everything about the Christian faith happen, that, that happens is bound up in the Trinity, from our worship to our understanding of salvation to our practice of communion. It's what defines us. It's why, as our gospel reading today in, from Matthew 28 says, that we are to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To baptize something is to immerse it. Uh, it's to submerge one thing into another thing. To incorporate one thing into another. So when we are baptized, uh, we are in being immersed, submerged into, or incorporated into the life of the Trinity. That's what's happening in baptism. Now, the central importance of the Trinity can also be seen in that it's precisely the Trinity that distinguishes Christians from Jews and Christians from Muslims. It's what differentiates Christians from marginal groups that look sort of Christian, like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, who use sometimes Trinitarian language but mean something different with it. And it's what ultimately separates Christians from all the other religious traditions in the world. Now, there are many things that the Christian faith shares in common with other religions. Every religion that I'm aware of has some notion of the divine or at least a sense of what is sacred. That's not special. Many religions speak of God as being just or loving or all-powerful or forgiving. So that, doesn't, that isn't special necessarily either. And a handful of religions speak of God as a singular entity. And that would mean that they are what we call monotheistic. Again, Christianity is not unique in this. But only one faith tradition speaks of God in terms of being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Only one. And that's Christianity. You see, there is a particularity in the notion of the Trinity. And the particularity isn't merely that there's a sense of threeness and oneness, or that there is both plurality and unity within God. The Trinity is a more specific claim than that. It's a claim that God is in himself distinctly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that he cannot truly be known apart from the particularity of this way of revealing himself. Now, obviously, this is a stumbling block to many people. Maybe for some of you, you've found it to be a kind of a hang-up and a bit of an embarrassment that we have these funny titles, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why the particularity? Why do we need the Trinity? Why not just to agree to talk generically about God? Well, I could go into a whole litany of reasons, but to use a simple analogy, as uh, nearly all of you know, I'm married, and the person that I'm married to, I refer to as my wife. But we all know that the term wife is generic. 
Hundreds of millions of other people every day are referred to by this same term. So it matters very much to me and to Elizabeth on the front row there that I have a very clear understanding of the particularity that I intend when I use this term. When I refer to my wife, I don't just mean anybody. I don't just mean women in general, not even a narrow select few. I mean Elizabeth. And in the same way, the specificity and the particularity of what we mean by talking about God as Trinity is precisely what gives the word God, the generic word God, any personal meaning. So when we talk about the Trinity, we're not talking about an abstract or objective or scientific description of God. We don't even have the luxury of standing at a distance and observing God or dissecting God in a laboratory or something. Instead, what we're describing when we describe the Trinity, when we refer to the Trinity, is the story of how God has revealed himself over time to us and the means by which he has personally invited us into his very own life. To talk about the Trinity is to speak the language of faith. To put it another way, the Trinity is not an attempt to give a scientific description of God. It's a relational description. It's about the relationships between the persons within the Godhead and about the relationship we have to God. So to go back to my example, I could talk to you about my wife Elizabeth in objective or in subjective terms. If I talk in objective terms, I can tell you that she is approximately five foot six inches tall, that she has dark hair, that she is ethnically half Chinese and half Norwegian, but none of these things are subjective. In other words, they don't tell you about my relatedness to her. But if I tell you that I love her, or that I would trust her with my life, or if I tell you the story about how we got to know each other and started dating and how she became my wife, or about, uh, about how I enjoy spending time with her, or about what we talk about when we're together. Now I'm talking in subjective terms. Now I'm talking in terms that are about my relatedness to her. These things necessarily involve trust and vulnerability. They're personal. But so often, this is not what happens when we start to talk about the Trinity. We start to talk about diagrams or metaphors, the egg, or water, or H2O, or whatever, and abstractions. We try to explain something that's a mystery. You see, talking about the Trinity is very difficult to do without distorting or missing the very point of talking about the Trinity. To use another analogy here, talking about the Trinity could be a bit like being obsessed with the architectural renderings or the blueprints of the house that you live in. I have a slide for this here. Are you following me on this? Okay, so the point of having a house is not found in obsessing over the plans. The point of a house is to live and dwell within it. You go to the, the next slide if you'd like. Just picture the irony of sitting at your kitchen table with a magnifying glass, trying to figure out the exact dimensions of the kitchen and the living room by looking at the plans forgetting that you are sitting in the very kitchen and living room being symbolically pictured in the plans. You see, what's 10,000 times more important than trying to figure out the exact dimensions of every room and the location of load-bearing walls and the, all the details of the plan is actually dwelling in the house. That's the point. So lest we get confused, 
I want to make it clear that the point of celebrating the Trinity is not talking about the Trinity. The point is for each of us to make the Trinity our home. Jesus says in John chapter 14, I have, a, again, a slide for this. Those who love me will keep my word. Actually, let's say this together. Can we do this? Those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Isn't that beautiful? God wants to make his home with you. He wants you, your life, to be caught up in his life. The Trinity is precisely the story of how it is that God makes his home with us and us with him. The Trinity isn't an abstract model. It's the gospel. So if the point is to experience the Trinity and to make our home with the Trinity, and if talking about the Trinity can risk distracting us from the very point of the Trinity, then the very obvious question is, why are we talking about the Trinity? Well, historically, the church was forced to start talking about the Trinity. And it had to start talking about the Trinity to address distortions being introduced by certain false teachers. I won't go into the whole story about it, but it's fascinating, actually. To use the language from the house analogy, these teachers were suggesting a remodel of the very Christian notion of God, one that many feared would fundamentally threaten the very basis of the Christian faith. So the church was compelled to articulate in very careful language a model for talking rightly about God. And I think we'd be very wise to pay close attention to what the church discerned. The longer I've been a Christian, the more I've recognized that this idea, this notion, this model of the Trinity, the way we talk about it, is incredibly important. I discovered the importance of something analogous to uh, this whole thing I'm talking about here not too long ago. My parents, who live a couple hours from here in rural Northern California, um, they built a, a home on their property for them to retire in. And perhaps a little out of the ordinary, they built it in stages as they had money to complete each portion of it. So they started with sort of the upstairs area where they were going to live, and it's kind of built on a hillside. And the porches and the basement they saved till later to, 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 to finish that part. So at one time, at one point not too long ago, um, they were working on finishing the basement of the house. And for various reasons that I won't go into, the floor plan for the basement called for the guest room to be on one end of the house. And then the bathroom for the guest room to be on the very other end of the basement. So there's like a 50-foot hallway that kind of that goes all the way across the house from one to the other. So if you're a guest, it's a little awkward to traipse across the entire basement if you need to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night. Now, eight months ago, uh, as the basement was still being finished, Elizabeth and I had the luxury of staying in the guest room downstairs, which was just sort of concrete down there. And, uh, we experienced the awkwardness of this layout firsthand. I, it was freezing cold, and we had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night and traipse across the whole thing. So I woke up early in the morning, and I was like, you know what? There's a solution to this problem here. So I took the liberty of drawing my parents an amateur architectural rendering of a remodel of their basement, which hadn't even been finished yet, which I thought could address this awkward floor plan. So I thought I was doing them a favor 
by showing them how they can rearrange a few things, pop a wall, a hole in a wall here, and add some plumbing there, and voila, you have a bathroom right next to the room. Well, let's just say that my helpful plan didn't go over so well. Uh, first of all, my parents were sort of perturbed at me for having the gall to casually make suggestions about how to spend their money on their house. Um, but more importantly, they quickly pointed out to me that my brilliant idea might actually cause their house to fall down. <laughs> you see, I hadn't taken into consideration the fact that my plan would have included knocking out what in construction language is called a load-bearing wall, which is exactly what it sounds like. The house rests on this wall here. Uh, which means that my little remodel in the basement, had we actually have tried it, would likely have caused the whole house to come crashing down. But because my parents were familiar with the blueprint of their house, they had the wisdom to quickly discern that my seemingly small remodel would have been potentially catastrophic. Well, in a somewhat similar way, the early church recognized that certain ways of talking about God were not only little departures from the plan, but if they were widely accepted and put into practice, they would actually threaten the continuing viability of the gospel, the entire structure of the Christian faith itself. In other words, people were doing remodels and dealing with load-bearing walls. This is why the very precise and carefully worded formulas for talking about God as Trinity came about. It wasn't that one night some people were sitting around a campfire and they cooked up some cool, clever ideas about how it would be awesome if God was like three and one, and one and three, neither confounding persons or dividing the essence of God from God, light from light, true God, you know, and so on and so forth. They didn't just sit around and come up with that language. No, the creedal language, the creedal language of the Trinity was carefully worked out as an approach to make sure that the entire house didn't come crashing down simply because someone, without understanding the full implications of what they were doing, casually introduced a little remodel or a twist to the Christian notion of God. And so, without a doubt, we ought to be celebrating Trinity Sunday. Without a doubt, we owe the courageous saints, the theologians, particularly of the 4th and 5th centuries, a massive debt of gratitude because they did careful work and they constructed the language of the creeds that saved the Christian house from collapsing in the face of subtle efforts to remodel the Christian notion of God. But if Athanasius, St. Athanasius, and Gregory of Nazianzus, and Basil the Great, and others who were church fathers during this time were here today, what they'd want us to do is not get lost in formulas and complicated uh, language and theory. They'd want us to worship the Trinitarian God. They want us to self-donate our life to the God who is continually donating himself to us in a dance of humility, of love. What's happening within the Trinity is this dance of self-donation. He'd want us to worship. They'd want us to worship the Trinitarian God. They want us to pray Trinitarian prayers. Have you ever noticed that we're supposed to pray in the name of Jesus to the Father who loves us in the power of the Holy Spirit? To pray our prayers in Trinitarian ways. Not just casually refer to some generic God out there, but we're praying to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. These early church fathers would want us to go out and make disciples and baptize them in the Trinitarian name to immerse people into the Trinitarian reality. 
They'd want us to regularly receive Holy Communion, which is our continual reenactment and renewal of our fellowship with the Trinitarian God. They'd want, us, they, they, they'd want those of us who are married to see our marriages as icons of the Trinity, self-donating marriages that we talk about in catechesis this morning. And for those of us who are single, they'd want us to see our singleness as a prophetic, as a, as a prophetic uh, a sign of the fulfillment of all of our sexual desires in the Trinitarian wedding of the Supper of the Lamb that we await. They want us to, re- to rethink our marriage and our singleness around the Trinity. They'd want us to build our community life, the way that we relate to each other from the very life of the community of, of the Trinity itself. They'd encourage us, in short, to live all of life in reference to the Trinitarian God, to whom we have access by faith through the, through the grace of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of the Father. And so, I want to commend to you not merely the Trinity as an abstract concept, but the grace-filled experience of the Trinitarian life. Life at home in the Trinity. So may the Trinity be to you your home and your destiny, your greatest joy and your deepest hope. This I pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, we, are, we marvel at the complexity and the beauty and the paradox and the mystery that your life with the Son and the Spirit is. We will never understand it, so help us to enter into that mystery. And protect us from ways of distorting what you have revealed to us. Thank you for the ministry of those bishops and theologians and priests in the 4th and 5th, even the 6th century and others who have done so much to protect the Christian faith. We celebrate that you love us, that you are merciful to us, that you have called us into your own life. May we respond to that call. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Eucharist Church Podcast. You can check us out online at eucharistsf.org, or you can come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 1504 Bryant Street, San Francisco, California.